Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. This is yet another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. Today, we're going to discuss what it means that some prominent scientific articles regarding COVID-19 have been retracted from big-name article from big-name journals. Helping us to understand this is our returning guest, Dr. Barbara Golder. Barbara is trained as a pathologist, lawyer, and ethicist. She writes Murder Mysteries, the Lady Doc Mystery Series. And more to the point of today's interview, she's the editor of the Lineker Quarterly, the official medical journal of the Catholic Medical Association. Barbara, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be here. So, Barbara, just uh, within the last couple of weeks, we've heard in the news, even popular news, about some articles that big-name scientific journals like Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Internal Medicine have retracted about hydroxychloroquine, high blood pressure drugs, and the usefulness of face masks for COVID-19. So the impression some of these popular articles give is that, well, maybe they were poorly written, or they faked their data, or they outright lied about something some people say their faith in science is being shaken. So simply, what does it mean when an article is retracted? Well, to, to be fair to some of these people who are worried about the quality of the science, sometimes it does mean that the data isn't good. It means that it can't be reproduced, and that may be just because there's a fluke. It may be because of an error in the way the experiment was designed. It may, in fact, be due to falsification of of data. We've seen all of those things. But the other thing it can be is uh, a result of an error in peer review. In other words, the peer review process didn't go as, as it should have. And sometimes it's just that um, the there's uneasiness about any of a number of things, the rapidity with which something came to press, the way in which it was managed, um, the way in which the data has been shared or um, what has been excluded. There are all kinds of reasons, but basically it means that for some reason, the article is one that the institution, the, the journal doesn't want to stand behind anymore. Are retractions always initiated by the journal? That's a good question. <laughs> They're always, <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but um, you know, it, it, um, it's always executed by the journal. It's generally initiated because somebody raises a question to the journal about the quality of the article. It may be within the journal itself, or it may be from some external source. So the impetus for looking at the article from retraction may come from a number of places, but the retraction itself has to be instituted uh, by the, by the I th journal. I thought I read that some of the retractions were actually initiated by some of the authors themselves. They can be. That's what I mean. It can come from different sources. They may say, oops, we didn't realize we didn't do this, that, or the other in the experiment. And so that they asked to retract the article. And, and retraction's a, a, a pretty substantial editorial process. So it, it's not done hastily, and it's done in a way um, to be fair to all of the parties. And certainly if, a, if an author says, I made a mistake and I want to retract this article and rewrite it, that's a good thing. Okay. Well, there's a website I just discovered last couple of weeks called Retraction Watch, uh, and it monitors papers that are retracted from scientific journals, not just COVID papers. So when an important article comes out, like some of the ones we're going to talk about, it gets widespread press coverage. 
But typically, when they're retracted, they don't get a lot of press coverage. I remember one years ago about the link between the supposed link, I should say, between autism and vaccinations. Uh, that was a very important retraction that happened. So what is the typical rate of article retractions? And how often are retractions just corrected instead of permanently removed? Uh, for, to answer the first question, I don't think there is a typical rate. I think it varies um, from time to time, place to place, and journal to journal. And one of the things that I think is it becomes a concern is when uh, a particular field or particular journal or a particular author has an elevated number over his peers. Or ah. Because because that might be indicative of um, not being careful with the data in the first place. Uh, most of the time, there's some question about the data or how it was handled that would involve a correction. And sometimes, and this is why that retraction process takes a while, sometimes what will happen is you simply put out a, an addendum uh, instead of a retraction. But if it's, if it's substantial and if there are substantial concerns about how the paper's put together, ultimately retraction is what handles that. You get it out of the stream of medical information because it's deemed to be not reliable anymore. So do you have any personal experience in dealing with a retraction? I do. I actually had to retract an article based on a mistake that we made as the journal, um, which is not something you like, like to do. But we basically the peer review process recommended a review that wasn't done. And so it was, it was basically our fault that, that we did not vet the data appropriately and we had to retract the article. So, which leads to the question, you know, what is the peer review process? Because we hear about it and people think it's magical or it's scientific or most people could not possibly understand what it means. So, what is the process and how well has it served us during the pandemic with rapid publications? Well, I think rapid publications are always going to be a problem because just like any other process, when you try to do something quickly, there's more room for error. And we're caught in this pandemic between trying to get the information as quickly as we can and trying to get it right. And the two don't always, always coincide. People think of the peer review process as validating the conclusions of a paper. And, and to a certain extent, I suppose that's a reasonable conclusion. But mostly the peer review process is, is to look at what's been done and see if it's been done in a reproducible scientific fashion so that the paper and the ideas in the paper are then out in the scientific community for discussion. Uh, it's very difficult, particularly if there's new data and there's a new conclusion, to know whether or not that's actually going to be the right one or not. What happens is somebody puts out a paper, says, I got these results with this particular drug, and then a bunch of other people try to do the same thing, and they either reproduce it or they don't. And that's how we ultimately determine the validity of whatever it is that's under discussion. The peer review process is to make sure that the pieces that go into that engine are good pieces. Okay, so it, it's, it's a way of ensuring that we've got the right parts to begin with in order to have the discussion about where we're going with this scientific information. It's not to give us a final answer. It's part of the process to getting there. So it doesn't guarantee that the conclusion of the paper is correct. No, it, it, it guarantees that, in fact, we, we have gone through this. 
it's been reviewed by people who are peers who have some experience in the area and that they say that the process and the information look appropriate that there is nothing obviously wrong about it but without looking at the data itself which is usually not included the, the underlying data is not usually included in a paper and without trying to reproduce that data uh, there's there's no real way to know whether they've gotten to the right conclusion um, you talk about the the website retraction watch there's also a journal or at least there used to be called the journal of irreproducible results <laughs> there all these people got something one time one way and and could never read and no one else reading. did yeah like room temperature fusion in the 80s <laughs> something like that yeah boy that would be great if we could ever do that end to energy problems uh so barbara you like to talk about different steps that are necessary to come to what we think of as scientific truth or at least practical information that we can use in our fight against disease I think that's true. I think people tend to think of science as being like mathematics, where you know you have a problem two and three equals five, generally speaking, anyway. Yes. <laughs> um, science is not always like that. Science is a series of iterative steps, you know, one building on another. And there isn't always a single right or a, and a bunch of wrong answers. There are answers that sort of congregate on the right side and congregate on the left side. But there are usually so many variables in science that one single answer isn't isn't always the case and frequently isn't the case you know, for example with the drugs used or under investigation for using in covid they're very different kinds of drugs and they treat different kinds of things and some work for some patients and some work for other patients and that's why we have this process so science is a process that leads us to an understanding of where we are and helps guide us to where we can get to a different place of understanding. And those things change over time. They're not always rock solid. I mean, even our understanding of gravity has changed since we first <laughs> figured out what yes. gravity is. So um, I, I think people tend to think of science as coming out of peer review as absolutely settled. And I think that's one of the reasons they're so about what's happened during this pandemic because all of a sudden instead of going on behind the closed doors of academics all of a sudden this stuff is out in public for people to see and they're confused by it because they're not used to it um, the scientists among them are going yeah this is how it works but but the ordinary person has never seen it before so when they saw when when sausage was made it was always made the same way it's just when people finally saw it they didn't want to see it, but they like the final product. Same thing exactly. with science sometimes. I think it is. I think science may fall into that that same category as making laws. You know, it's it's Ooh. wonderful if you're part of the process, but it is a little confusing if you're not. Yes. So peer review sounds like this very noble undertaking. You you gave me a description of it that to me, reminded me of how extroverted people make decisions compared to introverted. You know, an introvert will think about something silently and then finally, boom, spit out an answer. But how is peer review like the way extroverted people make decisions? Well, and I think it's a pretty good analogy, actually, that we've all known extroverted people. In fact, I worked with one, and it was very difficult because I'm on the complete other end of the spectrum. <laughs> I am the introvert's introvert. And he would, it, when you asked him a question, he would start talking and he would go through all of this stuff that <laughs> you, at some point you had, my head at least would hurt. And 
you know, it, they talk so much and they talk so long that the average person can't actually follow the thinking process and they get bored or, or, or lose focus. But the reality of what they're doing is, is reasoning through, but they're doing it outside, you know, where other people can hear it. And peer review is a little bit like that. We, we are allowing the discussion of science to go on in the literature. I found this. Well, I found that. Well, this doesn't fit with that. How do we put them together? It's that kind of discussion. And it can be very confusing for someone who looks at that process and thinks he's talking to the introvert who says, here's the answer, because that's not <laughs> Plus, the introvert can't think while the extrovert is talking, because the introvert needs quiet. Quiet. You're absolutely right. Um, it's in, and I think that's that's also true of how we process information generally. And I mean, we use the introvert, extrovert, but but there are people who are very methodical, and they and they take all of the different pieces. And then there are people who who intuitively gravitate one way or another. We're seeing on display very different models of how people deal with conflicting information, and it's. It, it, it's illuminating because we're learning a lot about how each other handles this, but it can also be confusing. In the, the mask thing is, is a perfect example of that. And we'll get to that later when we discuss that article. But I want to talk about people in academia. They make their mark significantly by writing and publishing articles. That takes time. But the thing is, the peer review process takes a lot of time. What's the motivation to be a peer reviewer? Does that help people's careers? I think largely the motivation for peer review is twofold. One is you, you want to make sure that there's good review of articles in your own field. So if you have expertise, you volunteer it. It's a, it, it's a matter of charity and, and to some extent justice, making sure that things are done well. Um, but I think the, the other piece is that it's, for the peer reviewer, it's it's a, can be a really stimulating, exciting, interesting process to see in detail how someone else thinks. Now, the problem is good peer review can take several iterations. I mean, it is not unusual for people to go back and forth several times. That takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And sometimes it's difficult to do because if you, particularly if you have a peer reviewer who's very blunt and says, this is what's wrong with the paper, and you get somebody on the other end who's a little sensitive, that that can be hard. That can be hard feedback to take. Um, uh, so say that happens in in a journal. As editor, what's your role in that conflict? My role is to try to keep it from becoming a conflict. And I do not. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't always succeed. I've had people say, "I'm not doing this anymore because this person was very mean to me in the review." And and that's. I have, believe me. I understand that my skin is thin enough to to criticism. I get that. Um, but sometimes it's, it's very difficult. And on the other end, I'm trying to coach people who are just being direct. Um, it's another one of those kind of introvert, extrovert things. You know, some people yes. are direct and some people are not. Um, trying to coach them on how to, to make things um, more neutral in, in presentations. That can be challenging. Point being, there's a lot of work going on in a lot of different places by a lot of different people. And it's not being either recognized by the institution. You know, nobody really much cares if you're doing peer review. Yeah. And it's not being um, paid for. You know, right. this is taking time out of your free time to do something. Right. So uh, it can be very difficult. And I, this is one of the reasons that I am so grateful to the people who do do peer review for me, because I know what it takes. Now, 
we're changing that a little bit. There is a, um, a, a website, uh, a system that puts together um, reviews of the reviewers. When I get a review back, I score it and say, this is really important. It helped me a lot. Or this was okay, but it didn't, um, it didn't help me that much. Or this was really inadequate. And it get, can get fed back to the site. And so people can sign up for this and have that as another piece of their academic um, record that I'm a good peer reviewer and here's eight different journals that say I've done a good job. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Is that That's relatively cool. recent? It is relatively recent. Um, I mean, it's been up for, for, for quite some time, but it, in terms of uh, developments, I think it's a good one. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, that's a major thing I learned new today. So let's talk now about something called preprint websites, which refers, and one of the famous ones is called Bio, B-I-O-R-X-I-V. And what this is for are articles that have been written and submitted to some journal for consideration, but the authors put them up there for people to read even before they are peer-reviewed. And uh, I read uh, on another, <laughs> actually on that website, that there are medical journals for COVID articles requiring that their submitted articles go on these preprint servers to speed the process of peer review. I've never heard of that till I was researching this last night. What do you think about that, Barbara? Well, I, th I think the preprint process does two things. One, it gives the, the author a boost in that he can in some cases point to this preprint and say it's really out there in the community being discussed already even though it hasn't shown up in print because the time from acceptance to print depending on the journal can be months uh, sometimes even longer than that and so one of the hazards is that your your article is kind of stale by the time it gets out because right. it's along so that's that's one of the nice things about the preprint and if people use it as a an opportunity for discussing information early, it can help with the peer review process in that you get these discussions ahead of time. Um, but it's not universal. Not everybody is, is doing that. And I think that um, it remains to be seen how useful it is for a, for a journal like ours, we come out four times a year and we have a, a very broad and um, diverse set of papers. It's probably not as important as it might be for uh, a narrow specialty journal that that can allow feedback, informal feedback early on uh, by this preprint process. Do you think the pandemic has increased the number of articles being put up on preprint servers? I wouldn't have any way of knowing that, but I would guess it probably is true because we're, the turnover on papers is so, I mean, the turnover on information, I don't know about papers, although we're getting papers on the pandemic as well. Oh, good. Um, the, the turnover on information is, is very rapid, and we're trying to make sense of it as quickly as we can. This is just another way of putting information out there for people to see. One of the interesting things I read about preprint articles is that of uh, for every 25 manuscripts that are submitted on a preprint server, peer reviewers only caught, caught one major deficiency out of those 25 articles. Does that seem believable to you? I mean, I have to believe it. That's what they reported. And until I have a reason not to believe it, I've got to. Does it sound surprising? Um, it does sound a little bit surprising because I think our, I, I think that the level of, uh, unless the preprint process really is making a difference in quality. Ah. 
and I and I really don't know that yet. Well, you'd have to you'd have to look at the preprinted and the not preprinted to see sure. how. Yeah, how that well, and they compared the, the preprint articles. So for every 25 preprint articles that made it to publication, they said only one of those 25 had to make, you know, a major deficiency change. Well, that, that's, that's awfully encouraging. Um, I would like to know, and I haven't, I haven't looked at this, so if you know, let me know, what, their, what the rate of acceptance was, because I think part of, part of that may be that some of those are being filtered out on peer review. Sure. And not being accepted to publishing. So we know that publication of articles related to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID has been fast. But has the process of learning about the disease through observation studies, publications, has it been any different than other medical conditions? Or is it just a compressed timeline to get these articles out? My sense is that it's just a compressed timeline, but it's different in this way. We have enormous numbers of people focusing on this one problem right now. And I think that may be a big difference because we have so much brain power in so many fields focused on trying to figure out what's going on that not only have we compressed the timeline, we've increased, um, we've increased the number of people who are working on the problem. That's always good. How has this affected, you know, the average person trying to understand what's going on with this particular medical condition? Well, I think we've, we've pretty much discussed that. They, they, um, the average person is trying to drink from the proverbial fire hose. There's a bunch of stuff out there, and it's changing on a daily basis. One of the things this has underscored for me is how poorly prepared the average guy is, or woman, to understand how the scientific process works and how to make sense out of these conflicting data. They're, they're just not... And, and that's reasonable. This is very arcane stuff we're talking about here. All of a sudden, because of the internet and because of social media and because of briefings, all of a sudden it's out there for everybody to see. And I think we expect a lot of people for them to try to understand that at the level they need to understand it uh, because it's confusing. It really is. Are there, for your friends who are not medical or scientific, are there any particular... Uh, sources that you recommend for them to learn about COVID-19 issues? My recommendation is usually don't get most of your information off of social media with a few exceptions. <laughs> uh, you know, if, you, if it shows up on your Facebook street feed, it, it may or may not be useful, okay? <laughs> um, I say that having shared a lot of stuff on my Facebook. Yes. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm contradicting myself here. But, <laughs> but in general, social media may not be the best place to look for that. I think the best thing to do for people is to limit their sources of input because it can be very crazy making to get all these conflicting things. Find a couple of places that you rely on, whether it's your state public health department or uh, the the um, Centers for Disease Control, whatever it is, stick to those places and and take direction from a place that you trust. It may be your family doctor. There have been a number of community uh, physician groups that have put up excellent sites on COVID talking about should you wear masks, what is social distancing all about, what are the symptoms, when do you have to worry, all of those things. Um, I think the real risk is to be so confused by the data that, that you make either no decision or, the, or, or an inappropriate one. Another part of the whole peer review process and publication would be the journals themselves. 
What are some of the conflicting agendas, both noble and ignoble, that a journal might have? Well, I, since I work for a journal with a, a clear agenda, I think I can talk about that. I mean, the Journal of the Catholic Medical Association is to talk about medicine from a Catholic <laughs> perspective. It is, it is not a universal journal. Right. There are some things that just, if you send them to me, it's not going to show up in my journal. It's just not. Right. Or in our journal. There are other journals um, that are more general and meant to be of broad um, of a broad discussion of medicine, the New England Journal, that sort of thing. Sure. Those those journals have an obligation, I think, to to be open to the the range of discussion in their pages, and they aren't always. I think we can say that with some confidence. We had an, an article a few months, maybe a year ago, on um, the ways in which some of these journals have neglected some things that are very important from a Catholic perspective. For, for example, um, the discussion of embryonic stem cells versus adult stem cells and, and why that might have happened. So I think that, that to expect any journal to be completely free of agenda is foolish because they're run by people and people have agendas. Well, that's why I said noble versus ignoble. Yeah, the best we can do is to recognize that we have those those biases and those agendas and try to for them in the ways that are appropriate. I mean, we, it, to some extent, we have the same thing in the Journal of the Catholic Medical Association. We're trying to find the broadest uh, limits of, of Catholic medicine so that people know what, what the options are. And I think the same thing is true of, of medicine from the secular perspective, whether it's general medicine or a specialty. Well, let's look at uh, three of the retracted articles. I'd like to hear your comments on them. And I remember when one of them came out in early April, uh, I remember talking about with uh, our friend, infectious disease specialist, uh, Paul Carson. And it was in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And in South Korea, they tested four, not 40 or 400, four patients with COVID while wearing and not wearing cotton and surgical face masks while they were coughing to see how much virus was expelled. And the study suggested that there was actually more virus on the outside of the mask than on the inside of the mask. And it got big press in the news saying, look, face masks don't work. So it's been retracted. So what was wrong with this paper that was published April 6th that it was retracted? I, I think the first thing that's a problem is that this has an N of four. I mean, these are only four patients. I, I think that's a very small group, and I think that I would have trouble re- publishing this with a number that small. I think the other thing is, if you have an outcome that is completely unexpected, and this would fall into that category, you have to have some explanation of what's going on there in order to make the paper worthwhile, or you have to repeat it because it is unexpected. And I don't, I don't know that either of those things was, was actually present here. And certainly, um, ultimately, they retracted the article. So does this mean anything for our mask wearing behavior? Or was it just not helpful? I think it was not helpful. And I and you have to and this is where the looking at the, the universe of data becomes important. You have this article that looked at five patients. And then you have articles that look at, for example, the spread of COVID in mask wearing societies like 
Korea or Japan, sure. and you find that their spread is much less. Now, those two things don't seem to go together. We have to, we have to find a way to, to resolve those two things. And that's where people who are not used to thinking in that manner, people who are not used to this give and take of the scientific process that inches us forwards, sort of throw up their hands and say, I don't know what to believe. And, and I can't blame them. There were two articles published in the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet by the same group that relied on data from an organization just recently heard of called Surgisphere. Um, one of uh, about medication treatment during COVID. The paper published in Lancet caused the World Health Organization to suspend the hydroxychloroquine treatment arm of an international study. This is a big deal. What happened with this study, Barbara? You know, I don't think we know yet. I, I think we're still sorting out what happened there. Um, certainly, uh, I think it's it's fair to say that the data they had was was not substantial and that they may have misinterpreted it. Uh, and again, this is one of those places where you had these two articles and then you had people saying, but I've treated 400 and some odd patients sequentially and they all got better. So with, and we, we also know that hydroxychloroquine has been used for a long time, both in terms of initially uh, malaria treatment, but also in terms of autoimmune disease, in terms of lupus and, and, and illnesses like that. So we knew already a lot about the complications. For this to come again and say, we can't use this because this extreme complication, I believe it's cardiac complications. Cardiac uh, arrhythmias. Yeah, arose, is, is a little unusual. If we before, why are we seeing it now? And it goes back to what I said. If you have something that comes out that's extraordinary, you really have to explain it. And I don't know that, that they did. And certainly the outcome of this indicates that maybe it was not the most solid well, study we've seen. And the outcome of that Lancet study was not only that hydroxychloroquine did not help, but that it actually increased deaths along with either the use of chloroquine, whether it was combined with azithromycin or not. And I think, isn't there some question with the data uh, provided by this group called Surgisphere from a number of countries and hospitals around the world? Well, my, and my understanding is that getting that data has been difficult. And, and that's part of the problem. If you can't get the underlying data, you, you have no way of understanding what's going on. And that's another one of those pathways that can lead a journal to say, you know what, we've got to pull this back. And they, I, I understand they've asked for the data and they're not being provided the data. Right. Uh, the other article, the third one would be from the New England Journal of Medicine. They examined patients on blood, <laughs> blood pressure medications that interact with a cell receptor similar to the receptor for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Because there was some question as to whether or not these blood pressure medicines could make SARS invade more effectively. And the article published by the same group of people as the Lancet article uh, suggested two things. First, that patients with cardiovascular disease have an increased mortality rate with COVID. That's been pretty well demonstrated. But the second thing is that a certain group of blood pressure medicines called ACE inhibitors and ARBs or angiotensin um, receptor blockers are not harmful in COVID patients. Are these two beliefs now in doubt? Well, I, I think they remain to be seen. And I think this is part of that process that we're talking about. Can you reproduce this? Can you explain it? I, I think you're right about the cardiovascular disease. We know that's a risk factor. We've known that for a long time. The question is, what do we do about these drugs? And again, th this was brought out very quickly 
because that's a real question when you're trying to manage patients who have this infection that has all these protein, many, many different manifestations. We're yes. trying to have vascular manifestations and uh, immune manifestations. There's a reason to get the data out there quickly, but it doesn't mean that the first pass at it is going to be the right one. So what does it mean to you here that the authors were not granted access to the raw data? So not only the journal wasn't granted access, but the authors weren't granted access to the raw data. What, what does that mean about the process of putting this particular article together? It's, to me, it's very peculiar because I don't know how you write about something you don't have the raw data on. I, I just don't understand that. Um, clearly, they found a way. But I, I think that un, unless you have the data, it's always going to be difficult to know that you're making the right or at least supportable conclusions. Because one of the questions you always have to ask is, what did you exclude? The most important question in a scientific experiment is frequently, what did you exclude out of this group? Because that shapes how the data falls out. Um, so I, I find that unusual. That's true because some people have gotten in trouble because they didn't include data that didn't fit their preordained outcome that they wanted to see. Exactly. Or, or they simply made a mistake and overlooked a, another contributing factor. And there are all kinds of reasons why that's a problem. And that's one of the reasons the more eyes looking at something, the better the opportunity to find out what's really going on. And I think the whole... Uh, interest in hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine actually stemmed from a very small study early on in the pandemic. Two small studies. One was um, a microbiological study. So it was an in vitro study that talked about how this process might work, the receptor and all that. And in vitro means in a test tube. In a test tube. Yeah, sorry. And then the other one was a very small series of patients who responded well to the treatment. And the nice thing about those two studies is they supported each other. One said, here is the mechanism by which yes. this might work. And the other one said, yep, by golly, if you put it in a patient, that seems to be what happens. And that's what you're looking for in science. So, yes, they, it, it came from a very small, but it was, but it was well peer-reviewed. It was, it was well substantiated, had good data underlying it. And then it was followed by a number of these other sort of um, – anecdotal, just people informally reporting, I've had 400 patients and 399 of them did well. <laughs> um, but, that's, but that's important. That's all part of the process. And I think that that's what the whole process of peer review and scientific examination is, is geared toward, things that build on each other and support each other so that ultimately we get a clearer picture of what's going on and then we can make the next step towards uh, treating or preventing the disease. Most of the studies now regarding hydroxychloroquine are, are not showing benefit. They're not showing harm, like the one that was retracted, but they're not showing benefit. Yet there are still people saying, no, you have to give it with zinc. Zinc helps the hydroxychloroquine get in the cells. Do you know anything further on that? I, I don't, but it, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I don't in the sense of, I haven't followed that particular sure. piece of the argument, but I think there's another piece to be looked at here. And I, and I think we sometimes miss this. And this is a point that uh, one of my microbiology friends makes. And that is, the question is not just the efficacy of the, the usefulness of the drug. The question is, when do you give it? And if you're giving it too late, it may not be useful. If you back up and give it to the patient earlier on in the course, before respiratory symptoms develop, for example, does that make a difference? 
we don't know yet. But that's a there was a study. I, I just read about a study. Um, University of Minnesota did a post-exposure prophylaxis study. So in other words, when patients were exposed to a known patient for at least 10 to 15 minutes face-to-face, they could email in and then they would get mailed from Minnesota either drug or placebo. And each group had a 12 to 14% infection symptomatic rate, those who got placebo and those who didn't. So actually, at least one of those studies has been done because they asked that excellent question that you pointed out. Well, and the next question is, of those 12 to 15% who got infected, how many of them go on to respirators, which is really... um, The key question. The key question here. And if it doesn't work as a prophylaxis, does it work as an early intervention? Right. Timing is everything with drugs. Yes. You have to get get it on board at the right time because it has a very specific effect, and we're still learning what those effects are with this disease. So in other words, one study, no matter how good, is never the complete answer regarding one drug and one disease. Never, because there's always another question. That's an excellent point to make so that you know, it's really hard for one study to completely prove or completely disprove something. Exactly. And again, physicians get used to this. Scientists get used to this. But when you're in the middle of an epidemic and what you really want to know is how do I keep myself safe, it's very difficult for a, a person who's not well grounded in science to accept accept the answer that well we're we're still figuring that out. You know, and, and speaking of that, just in the last couple of days, the World Health Organization has changed their minds on uh, masking in the public. Until a few days ago, they were just recommending that people taking care of known COVID patients to wear masks. Now they're recommending it if you cannot social distance or physical distance enough to wear a mask. Uh, now in line with our CDC and the European CDC. What does this mean to you, if anything? Well, I, 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 I think that, I think part of the problem is that when we talk about are masks useful, although that sounds like a very simple question, it carries yes. some baggage with it depending on the person who hears it. Now, for someone who's an academic researcher, he's going to look at it with a particular lens. How, how does it filter out? What does it filter out? In, in what circumstances is it most important? And so on and so on and so on. But we're talking about something a whole lot muddier than that, which is human beings interacting on a daily basis with each other in social circumstances, which is a totally different question. And I think sometimes you can be right on both ends and sound like you're not talking the same <laughs> language. The reality is... Masks are going to help more for somebody who is taking care of a COVID patient. We know this. This is why we put protective equipment on our doctors and nurses and people who handle respiratory therapy and things like that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for it on the other end because of the messiness of life. The reality is masks don't do much harm unless you have some underlying uh, restrictive lung disease. They probably do some good in the fact that it definitely reduces the amount of of aerosol that is generated. And aerosols carry the bacteria. And so if you can reduce, I mean, the the virus, they carry bacteria too, but in this case, the virus. Um, And if you can reduce the aerosol, you reduce the risk. And what you do, 
wearing a mask is not as much about protecting yourself as it is protecting other people, which I think is the piece. At least these masks, the N95 respirators protect the wearer also. Right. N95 respirators, most people don't have. Correct. And in in fact, those are the ones that need to be in the hospital for people who are taking care of those patients. Yes. Because of, because of their, um, because of their need. Anyway, doesn't do much harm, can do some good reminds us to maintain social distance. It reminds us that we're still in the middle of this epidemic. And it reminds us to be cautious of our fellow man. I think those are all important things. So there's a certain element of common sense that says, let's, let's do this. Uh, what I find difficult are these people, and there are a number of them out there on the internet, generating fear over wearing masks that you're going to get carbon dioxide toxicity or you're going to get COVID into your brain or whatever. You know, my simple response to that is, it, it, does that mean that all surgeons and their nurses around the world have been brain damaged since they've been wearing masks? Exactly. And, and, and anybody who's a surgeon or a, an operating room nurse or a, an OR tech wears masks eight hours a day pretty much nonstop because you're in the OR the whole day. And we know, we've studied this, we know how masks work. We know that they don't cause these problems. And so I have a a certain lack of patience with those, those pieces, but I think we can handle it from the common sense standpoint. And most people are, are doing that, I think. Barbara, what final comments would you have for listeners, especially as they see more articles that might be retracted? Well, I, I, I think your, your question earlier on sort of hones in on it. Find a good resource. Doctor, doctor has been a great one. Um, <laughs> you, you. Have, you, you guys have put out some wonderful stuff. The CMA has got an, a great deal of information on its website. Um, the CDC, pick, pick a source or two and stick with them and then let it go because you can make yourself very anxious by by getting too much information it, it's it's very difficult to process and if you're doing the simple things washing your hands wearing a mask maintaining social distance limiting social contact you're doing everything you can barbara thanks for being with us again thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of dr doctor the award-winning podcast of the catholic medical association this is dr tom mcgovern signing off until your next dose of dr doctor Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.